The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, in high school, one of my favorite teachers was my math teacher, Mr. Kuhn, and it was through Mr. Kuhn that I began to have a fondness for math, Um, actually led eventually to um, engineering school for a while there, and um, Mr. Kuhn, though, he was a fun guy, and Mr. Kuhn was a funny guy, and um, for example, he would often end class by saying something like, okay, um, class is over, but for homework... um, I want you to do problems one through 10 on page 397, um, except for Carrie. Carrie, I'd like you to do problems one through 20. And Carrie would always protest. It was always, he liked to pick on Carrie for some reason. Carrie would always protest. She'd say, Mr. Kuhn, that's not fair. To which Mr. Kuhn would ingest, respond, life's not fair, Carrie. And then he would kind of drum this up a little bit. He'd go around the room and he'd say, Justin, is life fair? And Justin would say, life's not fair, Mr. Kuhn. Sean, is life fair? No, sir. Life is not fair, Mr. Kuhn. Life's not fair, Carrie. That's what, he would, that's what he would say. Now, again, it was all in jest. It was all good fun. But it points to a truth, doesn't it? <clears throat> Life's not always fair. Life isn't fair. But we believe, don't we, that it ought to be? It ought to be. Every one of us, Christian or not, we, we all have an innate sense of right and wrong, an innate sense of fairness, uh, an innate sense for justice, where good is rewarded and evil is punished. And, and when that gets flipped around, we, man, we, we balk at it and, and, and we sort of, you know, we have this reaction to it. There's all kinds of examples in society that we could point to. We can also point to the Psalms. Multiple psalms where we read of the psalmist crying out, why do the wicked prosper? Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> Maybe you've been working hard at your job, and let's just say this coworker over here, they, they haven't been working so hard at their job, and yet somehow they get the promotion. <laughs> and you cry out like the psalmist, why do the wicked prosper? Or another, maybe a surprise bill comes your way and your more well-off neighbor, they just seem to be skating through life without any surprising bills. And you cry out in your own psalm of lament, that's not fair. See, Mr. Coombe was right. <laughs> life isn't fair. But it ought to be. And as Christians, we have this hope, don't we, that one day Jesus will return and he will right every wrong. All evil is going to be punished, all good is going to be rewarded, all things will be renewed and restored, all the, all the unfair sickness is going to be taken away, all sin and sinfulness and deceit and wickedness is going to be finally dealt with, and we will live forever in the world we all want. That's our hope. That's our hope as Christians. But how, do we, how do we know that that's actually true? How do we know That's not just something we tell ourselves. Well, in order for us to have a hope like that, in order for us to really have any hope for justice, even here on earth, you have to trust who's in control, don't you? You see, who's in control? Who who rules the world? Who has authority? It matters. It matters. And that has all kinds of implications for your life. 
Who you believe to be ultimately in control, it will face, it will shape how you face injustice. It will shape how you face unfairness when it comes up. It will shape how you face persecution or chronic illness or fear or anxiety in your life. And it'll shape how you make decisions when those things arise. Who has authority matters. And the book of Esther, which we've been in for the last two weeks and we'll be in for one more week after today, has a lot actually to teach us about authority, about who's in control. You see, on the, on the surface, it seems, as we, as we read the book of Esther, it seems on the surface that King Ahasuerus and his right-hand man Haman, that they're in control. They are, this is not an exaggeration, they are the two most powerful men on earth at that time. Until a great reversal comes. That's what we're going to see today in chapters 5 through 7. There's a a reversal in the empire. Now, just to remind you where we've been or get you up to speed if you're new or, you know, missed the last couple weeks, we're roughly 500 years before the time of Christ in the Old Testament here. God's people were exiled from the promised land by the Babylonians, but since then, there's been an emancipation decree that has gone out meaning that some of God's exiled people were able to return to the promised land, so some have, others haven't, like Mordecai, like Esther. Eventually, Ezra and Nehemiah will go to Jerusalem, but we're not quite there yet. And the setting of Esther is, of course, in the city of Susa, which is one of the capital cities in the vast, inescapable Persian Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, run by the most powerful man in the world, King Ahasuerus, as well as, like I just mentioned, his right-hand man, Haman. And in chapter 2, we read of how this young, beautiful uh, Jewish orphan girl, how she became queen in this empire. We also read of how Mordecai, her cousin, who was raising her like a dad, how he works in the king's court. Remember that? And while he was working one day, he actually overheard an assassination plot against the king. He shared that with Queen Esther, who shared it with the king, and the plot was foiled. The would-be assassins were executed, and the king was saved. That's the last paragraph of Esther chapter 2, and it's, it's important for us to remember that and to note that because it comes up again today. Mordecai was never actually rewarded for his righteous deed. For ratting out the hit. <laughs> in chapter 3, then we meet Haman. We met Haman last week. He's promoted to the king's first in command. And then last week, we also learned of this beef between Haman and Mordecai, who wouldn't bow down to Haman. Remember, Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. He wouldn't show him honor. And so we learned of this enmity that was between Haman and Mordecai. It was an enmity as old as the garden itself. And eventually, we read that it's an enmity, a hatred inside of Haman that expands past Mordecai, actually out to all Jews. He wants them all killed. Haman wants all Jews killed. In fact, he convinced the king of it in chapter 3, even though he didn't name the people in particular. Instead, in chapter 3, verse 8, Haman simply tells the king, hey, there's this group of people scattered throughout the kingdom that are operating with a different set of laws. They don't keep the king's laws, and so we should get rid of them. That's really all he said. Even if we think that's not fair, the king says, sounds like a good idea, and Haman hatches this edict to go out that all this people, again, unnamed to the king, 
but known to us as the Jews, God's people, that they would be destroyed, killed, annihilated, and plundered. (laughs) Now think about that for a minute. This is God's people we're talking about here. All of them. All of God's people. Not just some. This edict is for all of God's people everywhere were to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. Can you imagine if that happened? No more people of God on the face of the earth at all. No more worshipers of Yahweh at all. No line for the Messiah to come through. No one for the Messiah to come for. All of God's people, gone. I mean, what about the covenant? What about the promises? Who's in control here? In chapter 4, then, Mordecai hears about it, tears his clothes, puts on some sackcloth and ashes, gets word to Queen Esther. He appeals to her to appeal to the king, asking him to spare the Jews, which was dangerous, of course, but Mordecai encourages her to go through with it, famously saying in chapter 4, verse 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Remember that? Esther agrees. She's going to risk her life to save her people. And that's where we pick up today in Esther chapter 5. Make sure you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you this morning so you can follow along. We'll be in Esther chapter 5 all the way through 7. And actually, we're going to look at the first two verses in chapter 8 today. Esther chapter 5, it's on page 413 in the Pew Bibles. If you're uh, using one of those today, if you're still looking for Esther, if you're in the Psalms, you work your way to the left a little bit and you get Job, and then Esther is right before Job. It can be a little tricky to find. But Esther chapter 5, again, page 413 in those pew Bibles, beginning in verse 1. We read, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, and then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And so here she goes, right? Risking her life. And we, we read in chapter 4 that to go before the king and without being called was to risk actually being put to death. But she goes, dressed not to, not to seduce or to remind the king that she was the winner of that competition back in chapter 2. No, this time she is in her royal robes. Verse 2 says, when the king saw her, when he saw Queen Esther, she won favor in his sight. So he sees her there, not just in her beauty, but in her majesty. (laughs) And he's captivated by her. Perhaps no longer simply by her looks, but by her, her power, her confidence. It's Queen Esther we're referred to here. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Surely he knows she wouldn't risk her life. He knows she wouldn't risk her life for something that wasn't very important. Something must be really bugging her. And he says, whatever it is, it's yours. Make your request. 
Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. All right, for reasons that were not told, Esther doesn't just straight away ask him to spare the Jewish people. Instead, she invites the king and Haman, again, the two most powerful men on the face of the earth, to a feast. Verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly. So we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what's your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. He asks again and promises again. Whatever it is, whatever you want, it's yours. And then Esther answered, verse 7, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, at first, we're not so sure if we just like lost our place and read the same thing twice, right? It's like, what? Am, I, am I off a line here? Um, but no, we, we, we read what we read. She doesn't come out with it right here either. And we're still not sure why. We're not told why. Perhaps she had a moment of fear. Maybe she was having second thoughts. Perhaps she wanted another day to, to pray. Perhaps it was a, a brilliant plan on her part to sort of heighten the suspense for the king. We're not told. But, but in any case... There's to be another feast the next day. The, the king and Haman are to be there. And that's when she says she'll make her request known. Now, Haman is loving this business, right? I mean, remember, he doesn't know Esther's a Jew. Um, not at this point. No one does. She's kept that concealed. All he knows is that he has become this special guest, the special guest of the king and the queen. And he likes it. He likes it. Haman, actually, he went home that day. He goes out that day joyful and glad of heart, verse 9 says. He was puffed up. He was flying high. He's pretty pleased with himself, we might say. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So everything is going great for Haman, except this Mordecai character over here. It won't show me the honor that I deserve. Hmm. Now, think about Haman for just a minute here. Um, Haman is a prideful man in this story. All right, he is puffed up with his own view of himself. He is so full of pride, and yet one rather insignificant man, Mordecai, not rising in his presence and not trembling at his failure to rise either, it chips at him, doesn't it? Pride works that way, doesn't it? It's insatiable, pride is. And before we cast off Haman, man, we, we, we need to be humble enough to acknowledge there's a little bit of Haman in all of us. When you think of our day of uh, social media, um, self-promotion, boy, pride culturally is embraced and cherished today. It's viewed as necessary, if not essential, for human flourishing. The message of our culture tells us today is, is embrace yourself, express yourself, and promote yourself, right? And we, man, we buy into it. We love the praise of others as human beings. 
we get a little high on it. A little dopamine hit. Likes, retweets, shares, reach, influence. It's offline too. I mean, we, we just, we love the praise of man. Being included in the right inner circle. Being invited to the right party. Being recognized for our accomplishments or even our acts of service. Our acumen. But there's a little lesson here in Esther and it pertains to Haman and pride and it's this. If pride is ruling in your life, it will always be a hungry monster. There's no ultimate satisfying the appetite of pride. No amount of likes will ever fill it. And any little criticisms, that's what we see with Haman, any little negative comments, no matter how insignificant, they'll chip at you. Pride is insatiable. And part of the reason Haman is in this story is to help reveal our own pride so that we'll confess it as sin and turn from it in repentance. And so Haman, he's flying high, right? He's in the innermost circle with the king and the queen. But then there's Mordecai. Chips at him. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He had to restrain himself from just like going over and throttling Mordecai, apparently. He sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. Man, I'm so rich, he told them. Look at how rich I am. Look at all these sons I have. Starts talking about the promotions with which a king had honored him and how he'd advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Feeding his pride, see, by boasting now. Pride must always boast. It's one of the ways it feeds itself. Haman is the kind of guy who probably never says, hey, tell me about your day. Oh, he's always too busy telling you about his. Pride doesn't listen well, does it? No, it's too busy boasting. Verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me Come with the king to the feast she prepared. Aren't I awesome? And tomorrow, I get to go again. I'm invited again to go again together with the king. More boasting, more self-feeding. Verse 13. Yet, all of this is nothing to me. I count it all as dung, almost, he says. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. His pride just won't let it go. The monster demands to be fed. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, I don't know if they're just like, dude, get over it. Like, but his wife has just got this plan. I don't know if this is, like, if she's just kind of being crazy, just like, hey, just go do this. Or if it was genuine, but she says to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Just have him knocked off already. What are you complaining about? You're powerful. This idea pleased Haman. And so he had these gallows made. Like, I love the practicality of Haman's wife here. It's like she says, if you are so dang important, <laughs> and this Mordecai guy's bothering you so much, just tell the king to kill him. But not just kill him. Hang him on a gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet high. That's a high gallows, in case you were wondering. An absurd height, perhaps mimicking the absurd height of Haman's pride. <laughs> now, before we skip too quickly to chapter 6, 
And if we just pretend like we don't know how the story ends for a minute, it's hard for us to do, but we ought to. If you were hearing this for the very first time, you'd be thinking, oh no, they're going to kill Mordecai. Like they're going to kill him in the morning. Esther will be too late. Like she's not going to make the ask to the king until tomorrow night at the feast. It's going to be too late. Her cousin, who's been raising her like a dad, is going to get murdered. Haman is in control. He's at the seat of authority and power, alongside the king's authority and power, and they're going to kill him. Esther, most likely, unaware of this danger, though, even if she knew about it, there's probably nothing really she could do to stop it. There's really nothing anyone can do to stop it. The second most powerful man in the world is going to ask the first most powerful man in the world to kill Mordecai. That's not fair, we say. We know inherently, don't we? This is wrong. This is injustice. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does wicked, prideful Haman prosper? And Mordecai, the one who saved the king's life back at the end of chapter 2, why does he go unrewarded? It's not fair. Life's not fair. And yet, we're learning, aren't we? Who's in control? Who rules the world? Who has authority? It matters. It matters. Esther 6, verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. He's got a little insomnia going on, right? And he's a little melatonin or something. Maybe the wine from that feast is messing with him. He, he gave orders then to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. That sounds like it put anybody to sleep, you know? Like, that's why you read Leviticus at night when you're trying to nod off, right? And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is the assassination plot that Mordecai foiled back at the end of chapter 2. It was all written down. And we can picture maybe the king saying, oh, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. Several years ago now, wasn't it? Boy, that was a, cra- that was a crazy ordeal. And, and thank goodness for that, that fellow. What was his name again? Yeah, Mordecai. Mordecai. I remember, yeah. And the king said, what honor, what distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Remind me what we did for him. Remind me how we honored him. This is an important question here. Extremely important that he, that he asked it because in the Persian Empire, he, he would have, loyalty would have been super prized. Very well prized. Loyalty was rewarded in order to encourage more loyalty to the king. Just as much as disloyalty was to be punished in order to discourage more disloyalty. Well, the king's young man who attended him said, actually, looking over the story here in the record, it looks like nothing's been done for him. We can't have that, he says. And so just then, he must hear someone out in the court must be very early in the morning now, early enough that the king's still maybe trying to go back to sleep, I'm not sure, uh, but late enough that Haman's showing up early for work so he can get that request in to get Mordecai taken care of, remember? And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman, verse 4, had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman, you're, you're right-hand man, he's out there. He's standing in the court. Oh, bring him in, bring him in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done? 
And what goes down next is maybe one of the most comical parts in the whole scripture, you know? Um, you ever had that thing happen to you where uh, you, you, you think somebody's talking to you or waving at you, and it turns out they're actually talking to somebody else or, or waving to somebody else? This happened to me at the gym recently, um, like a month ago. I'm, I'm at the gym, you know, I'm working out, and I get done, and I kind of sit up, and I'm I just looking out across. You know, it's bigger than this room or so, and I look, uh, somebody's on this treadmill over here. There's a woman on the treadmill over here, and he's waving. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of weird. And I kind of look like, do I know, is that from some different church? What is that? And then you do the thing where you kind of like awkwardly like <laughs> wave back, you know? And then I turn around, and, oh, it's, it's this person back here that she was actually waving to. That was super awkward, huge dork moment, total dork moment. Well, Haman here is about to have the dork moment to top all dork moments, all right? Uh, the king has asked, what should we do to celebrate the one whom I want to honor? And Haman, (laughs) this is the word of God. Haman actually says to himself, who would the king like to honor more than me? (gasps) I mean, that is some blinding pride right there, right? And pride does that. It'll blind us. Verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor... (laughs) Let royal robes be brought out, which the king has worn. Like, let's get the king's robes on this guy. And the horse that the king has ridden, let's get the king's horse under this guy. And on those whose head a royal crown is set, let's actually put the king's crown on him. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them actually dress him. We're not going to have him dress himself. We'll actually get him dressed. Dress the man who the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Didn't take Haman very long to come up with all that, did it? It's like, what should we do? I know. Robe, crown, horse, through the city, you know. The king said to Haman, this is a great idea. Well done, Haman. Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned, all right? This is the moment at the gym where you realize that person on the treadmill is not waving at you, all right? Uh, The point for Haman, where his pride takes this significant blow, I mean, not only is all this not going to be done for him, it's all going to be done for his nemesis. And the king is super clear, isn't he? Hurry. Do it now, do it just as you had said, and leave nothing out. <laughs> Verse 11, so Haman really doesn't have a choice, so, does he? So he took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. He has, he's actually the noble official that's doing the dressing. Man, it's so good. He dresses Mordecai and then he has to be the one that leads him through the city even. Throughout the city square, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor is probably what it sounded like, Right? And Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. Now I want us to pause here and make three observations what's going on here. Number one, Mordecai, he's gotten what he deserves, doesn't he? Finally, his righteous deed from years ago has finally been rewarded. He gets, in a sense, what he deserves. His loyalty rewarded, and we... We read it and we cheer. Yay, Mordecai. 
It's great. Second observation, a great reversal has begun. Esther is a story of a great reversal. And within that story of great reversal, there are lots of great reversals, actually, that point to and contribute to and reinforce the great reversal. Think about it. Um, Mordecai's unrecognized deed has become recognized. He's gone from obscurity to prominence. Or we might say, the humble has been exalted. On the day that Haman uh, has gone to the king to have Mordecai killed, not only is Mordecai not killed, he's honored. All the glory that Haman craved for himself has been bestowed instead upon his nemesis. Or we might say, the proud has been humbled. At the beginning of chapter 4, we read of Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. You remember that? When the edict went out? tore his clothes, covered his head with sackcloth and ashes. By the end of chapter 6, brother is wearing the king's robes. And Haman, instead, is the one mourning with his head covered. A great reversal has begun. And the third observation that we make with eyes of faith is that the hidden providence of God is at work. The hidden providence of God is at work. Remember, God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, not once. And yet he's everywhere present if we look for him with eyes of faith. Or in the words of commentator Karen Job, she says he's omnipotently, uh, I'm sorry, om- omnipotently present even where he's most conspicuously absent. See, we might say, as we, as we read through the story of Esther, we, we might say, you know, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep that night. Um, And it just so happened that he asked for the book of memorable deeds to be read to him. And it just so happened that when the book of memorable deeds was read to him, that the story selected just so happened to be the story of Mordecai sparing his life. And it just so happened that Mordecai wasn't originally rewarded for it. He wasn't rewarded for his righteous deed, having it stored up, so to say, for such a time as this. And then it just so happened that Haman entered into the court as the king just so happened to be asking Mordecai, or asking how Mordecai should be rewarded. Just so happened that he didn't mention to Haman that he was talking about Mordecai. We might say it just so happened that Esther had put off her request for another day. Remember, that storyline's going on here too. Before that, it just so happened that the king listened to her instead of ordered her to be killed when she approached the throne uninvited. I guess it just so happened that her cousin Mordecai who just so happened to be raising her because her parents just so happened to have died. This Mordecai just so happened to be working at the king's court where he just so happened to hear the edict going out to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. And thereby he got a message to her, a plea to her to plead before the king. And it just so happened that this beautiful young Jewish orphan girl had won the king's favor even before. It just so happened that she was queen. (laughs) That's a lot of just so happens. You know, I mean, that's a lot of coinkydinks. And to the eyes of faith, we know. We know it didn't just, just so happen. We know it's the hidden providence of God at work, preserving his people, working all things together for good for those who love him. As it 
Turns out we understand Esther was brought to the kingdom for just a time as this. You know, one of the reasons that we broke from Romans to look at Esther together is that Esther is the story here in the Bible is a beautiful illustration of Romans 8 for Christian believers. A great reversal for us. We think about it as, as Christians. A great reversal has come for us in Jesus. Romans 8 was teaching us, wasn't it, that everything's going your way now if you belong to him. He's using everything to fulfill his purpose in your life. Your life is not a series of random dinks. Nothing is just so happening. He's using it all. Even right now, he's in control. Whatever's going on in your life right now, he's in control. The hidden providence of God is at work in your life. We might not always understand it. We might not always see it. But it's true. He works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's at work in you. He's in control. Back to Esther. From a worldly perspective, it seems as though Ahasuerus and Haman, right, the two most powerful men in the world, are in control. But as Christians... As we read the story, we know better. We know with eyes of faith, we know who's really in control. We know who really rules the world. And it matters. As it turns out, some of Haman's wise men knew something of this too. <laughs> Picking up in chapter 6, verse 13, after Haman went home mourning and with his head covered, verse 13, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. You guys are never going to believe what happened to me. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh says to him, if Mordecai, whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I guess it just so happened they didn't tell him that yesterday. (laughs) While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Again, we see the reversal. Just yesterday, Haman was boasting about his position in the palace. He was the only one invited to the feast with the king and the queen. What privilege, what power. Now we see him, not invited, but taken. Do you notice that? Hurried along. We almost get the sense that it's against his will. Taken to the feast that Esther had prepared. prepared. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, as men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Basically saying, I wouldn't have bothered you about that. But here we see Esther at long last put forth her request, the plea that Mordecai had pleaded with her to make. 
As far as we know, she knows nothing about the early morning events of Mordecai being honored, of Haman being properly humiliated. And here we see her clearly identify herself with the people of God, don't we? If I have found favor, if it, if it pleases the king, grant me my life and spare my people. There's been a decree for me and my people to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And then King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? It's kind of odd. Like maybe he's playing dumb. Um, maybe, maybe the incident with Mordecai and the assassination attempt was just so commonplace. Maybe there's always people trying to knock him off. Maybe it was just, maybe Mordecai is just so insignificant that he didn't remember him really, you know? Doesn't even remember this edict going out. After all, he didn't actually write it. The king didn't. Haman did. Either way, he asks now, who did this? We can almost picture Haman, can't we? <laughs> Sinking in his chair. Sweats beating up on his brow. It's that busted feeling that you get in your bowels that makes you want to go to the bathroom like instantly. You know what I'm talking about? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. He's the one. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Another reversal. In chapter 5, verse 9, Haman was filled with wrath because Mordecai, that Jewish man, wouldn't tremble before him. And here we have Haman trembling before his Jewish cousin, a woman no less. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. And Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Further reversal, right? As we consider all that is, this began when Mordecai wouldn't fall before Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Here instead we have Haman, the enemy of the Jews, falling before Jewish Queen Esther. Verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine and Haman was following, as, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Uh-oh, right? And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, these gallows just so happened to be standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Now, all is almost all well, isn't it? It seems to all be working out here. Mordecai has gotten what he deserves, in a sense. Um, Haman has gotten what he deserved. Good has been rewarded, evil has been punished. Great story. Roll the credits. They can all live happily ever after, you know? But you probably noticed that there's three more chapters to Esther, Right? And the reason that there is three more chapters is because Haman's edict has already gone out way back in chapter 3. And they don't have an emergency broadcast system, you know? Hasn't been invented yet. There's no Twitter. JK, LOL, you know? Never mind. Forget that edict thing that happened. Back in chapter 3, we read letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th day, the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Which means there's a question that lingers. Will God's people survive? 
Will they ultimately be delivered? Will it all work out in the end for God's people? Is there hope? Hmm? Well, it all depends, doesn't it? Remember what we said at the beginning, in order to have hope, any hope for justice, even here on earth, we have to trust who's in control. Who's in control? Who rules the world matters. Well, if we sneak a peek at chapter 8, we get a sense of how it'll turn out for God's people, which we'll look at more next week. But for now, look at Esther 8, verse 1. Look at who's in control. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. As my cousin, raising me as my dad, were Jews. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Oh, the reversal. The reversal. Mordecai now wears the, the signet ring, the same signet ring that King Ahasuerus gave to Haman to seal the edict that went out to annihilate the Jews. Who's got the ring on now? Mordecai. And as we continue on next week, we'll see Esther and Mordecai from their place of power, from their place of control and rule, issue a new edict in the name of the king, seal with the same signet ring. Who's in control, see? Matters. Now, we might be tempted at this point to sort of dust our hands, you know, um, maybe even skip the final scene, say, great story, toss our popcorn in the trash on the way out, go home, back to our lives. That'd be a big mistake. Here's why. Um, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 he writes, for whatever was written in former days, like the book of Esther, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Hope. There's a sense, I want you to see a real sense, that the book of Esther foreshadows Jesus. And therefore, through the encouragement of Esther in the Holy Scriptures, we get hope. And it's tricky because there's not a one-for-one -one character foreshadowing from the book of Esther to Jesus. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. One writer says Esther is more like the Lord of the Rings than it is Narnia. Okay, where there's no Aslan, no one character that stands for Christ. Instead, there's multiple characters that take the shape of Christ, each foreshadowing different aspects of Christ and the work of Christ. But start, just start with Haman. Right? Through his one trespass, his pride, his anger, which led to the edict. His one trespass led to condemnation for all God's people, didn't it? Just like Adam's sin and guilt spread to all, as we read in Romans 5. And then there's Mordecai and his one act of righteousness, which leads to justification, life, at least to life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one's obedience the many will be made righteous. Mordecai, I hope you see, foreshadows a greater, fuller, righteous man. The one righteous man, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to Esther, who, who finally identified with her people and risked her life to save her people, which of course foreshadows Jesus, who through his incarnation, fully identified with God's people, and on the cross, not only did he risk his life to save his people, he gave his life to save his people, to save us. Back to Mordecai, 
in chapter 8 of Esther, we see him highly exalted, given authority, the ring. And after his resurrection, Jesus is exalted, given all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He's in control, church. He rules the world, and it matters. It matters. Lastly, there's God's people spread throughout the empire. And there's a death sentence pronounced on them, isn't there? They should expect nothing but death, and yet a great reversal has come into the empire. Esther and Mordecai, the Christ figures, are exalted and in control, which means everything's going to work out for God's people. So it is for us, church. A great reversal has come in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate reversal. Where once a death sentence was pronounced over us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. We were children of wrath. But Jesus, he's reversed all that. Through his death and resurrection, the curse has been reversed. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father in heaven where he rules and reigns. And even though we're not to the end of the story as God's people, you can trust because Jesus is in control. It'll work out in the end. One day, he will return and right every wrong. Evil will be punished. All evil will be punished. Even evil deeds done to you. Your righteous deeds, imperfect as they are, will be rewarded. You will be ultimately delivered. Nothing's going to separate you from this. All things will be renewed and restored. All the unfair sickness taken away. All sin and sinfulness and deceit and wickedness finally dealt with. And you will live forever in the world we all want with Jesus who will continue to rule and reign all the way into eternity. (laughs) That's your hope. That's our hope. How do we know it's true How do we have a hope like this? How do we know we're not just telling ourselves this as a story? Because Jesus is already on the throne, church. That's how. He's been highly exalted. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's in control. He rules and reigns over everything. His hidden providence is at work in your life and in this world. And it matters. It matters. Let's pray. Father, help us now to trust you. Help us to trust what we just read. To to trust it as your holy history given to us through your word to give us hope. Help us trust that Jesus is on the throne right now, that there are things that we need to bring before him right now as the one who's on the throne and laid down before him right now, trusting that he's in control of it all. Father, thank you for Jesus. By your spirit, would you strengthen us now in hope? You are, you are working all things together for good for us. Even when we can't see, 
even when we don't understand. And therefore, we love you, Father. Help us to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.